I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and journalist David Davis. His new book is Wheels of Courage, how paralyzed veterans from World War II invented wheelchair sports, fought for disability rights, and inspired a nation. Countless numbers of U.S. soldiers, sailors, and Marines were paralyzed on the battlefield during World War II. In an inspiring story of the world's first wheelchair athletes, David Davis reveals how they organized the first ever wheelchair basketball teams within VA hospitals after the war, which quickly spread across the nation and changed the perception and treatment of disabled people. His book follows the lives of three of these vets, describes their time in the military, their injuries, their recovery, and their role in creating wheelchair basketball. Uh, Davis has David Davis has worked as uh, has appeared in Sports Illustrated, Smithsonian Magazine, The New York Times, The L.A. Times, Wall Street Journal, and I can go on and on. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, David. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. Okay. Well, as you've said, and as one can glean from it when they read your book, that these men, these three men, and also many others, have changed the changed the narrative of disability uh, from one of pity to hope and to, as you've described, endless potential. How did they do that? How did this happen? Because we're talking about way back in what they were injured during World War II. So uh, talking about the 1940, 41. Um, How did it all begin? Correct. Yeah, Um, it does go back quite a ways. um, And if you if uh, those of you who who study history or or have or have an interest in you know presidents may remember that you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt who took office in 1932 and then served until he passed away in 1945 had had polio when he was a young man in the 1920s and he he was uh, in a wheelchair uh, but he took great pains to avoid being photographed in a wheelchair. And the reason I bring up that anecdote is, in a sense, that was the perception and that was the view of many people, that disability was a weakness, that disability was meant to be hidden away. And, in fact, um, many uh, families with people who have uh, people with disabilities would confine them to institutions or, or basically keep them in the, in the home. Um, well, wasn't it if you had a physical disability, it was also automatically associated with the fact that you also had a mental disability. They sort of put it all into one category, that you were a non-functioning person in total. Correct, correct. And you didn't, you know, the stereotype would have been... Uh, you know, a, a a blind veteran selling pencils on the street. That that was about as 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 uh, that was about your career aspirations. You know, uh, for somebody with disability. Um, and you know, I'm talking in general. Obviously, there there are exceptions. Um, and there were very few um, popular movements to you know disabuse this stereotype. Um, and in terms of particularly paraplegia, and we're talking about people who, who have been paralyzed, before World War II, and in other, in other words, if you were a veteran in World War I and you were rendered paralyzed on the battlefield, uh, 
the chances of you, you know, having a, a normal life were, were virtually nil. Approximately 80 to 90 percent um, died within about 18 months. And most of them didn't die necessarily because of, you know, the bullet wound or the shrapnel or whatever. It was the disease or the sepsis that developed afterwards that medicine, mod- medical doctors at that time were powerless to prevent because they did not so the have doctors the didn't have the tools to to do what they needed to do to prevent as you're saying the over oh, the infections the bed sores those kinds of things or even exactly. and they didn't have antibiotics either so exactly Pen- penicillin comes in the 30s and then you know being able to ramp up and, and create a, a vast amount of penicillin only comes starts to come during the war so yeah that, and, and and penicillin and also sulfur drugs and tablets uh, begin to be used in World War II, and so you also have better battlefield surger- surgical wards or theaters, as, the, as they would be called, that would be fairly close, to, as close as they could get to the battlefield oftentimes, so that people could get uh, immediate uh, relief or medical attention. So that was also an innovation um, that, that came about in World War II. And so th- the bottom line was, you know, by the time, you know, the U.S. and, and, and its allies had defeated Nazi Germany and it had vanquished Japan in the Pacific, you had about 2,500 American paralyzed veterans who returned home. And they were, in a sense, promised a life, now a normal lifespan, which had never been done before, which had never happened before to people with paraplegia. Okay. So they were so promised was, a better life. They were promised that they could have a quote, I'm saying normal life. So how, and that obviously we've taken quantum leaps since then, which we're, I want to talk to you about. But uh, yeah. so they did come back, but there was still the stigma of uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, people who had polio were stigmatized, I, uh, you know, uh, let alone being totally paralyzed, uh, just uh, any, anybody with a disability was, paral- was uh, stigmatized, I think, or even victimized. So what happened right. when and they came back? Take, let's take some what, of these stories. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's a combination of things. Um, first of all, you had, it, it, was a, it was a major effort by the VA, the Veterans Administration at the time, recognizing that there, were, there was this large cohort of young men who had suddenly become paralyzed for life. And they sort of had to go, well, what are we going to do with these folks? And they turned to several doctors who were uh, convinced that the old methods of, of caring for paraplegia, which was to say, leave them in a big plaster cast, immobilized, and let them you know, sit on, you know, lie on the bed for days on end, months on end, until basically they passed away. Now they would try something different. They were, and basically this is a, a long way of saying it was the introduction of rehabilitation in medicine. Get these guys up and, you know, obviously they can't walk around, but get them up and moving. Get, him, get them onto a mat and they can do some workouts and physical exercises. Build up their shoulders, arms, and, and uh, so that they can lift themselves out of bed and have some uh, mobility, but also some independence once they got into the wheelchair. Um, and it was a bit of a coincidence, but 
you also had in the 30s, late 30s, early 40s, the introduction of, of what's now considered the first modern wheelchair, uh, which was manufactured out here in Southern California by uh, Everest and Jennings, one of whom was, was disabled himself. This was a foldable, maneuverable wheelchair so that uh, veterans could, could you know, propel themselves out of bed into the wheelchair, wheel themselves out of a, a home or the hospital, and go in, get to their automobile, uh, open the door, climb into the car, fold the wheelchair, put it in the back seat, and drive away with a special adapted car. Which, again, you know, it's interesting, VA David, helped. when you're talking, because it's really the marriage between a lot of different kinds of things. As I'm listening to you, it's like mm-hmm. you have the technology, then you have the different attitude, you have the ability medically to treat paralyzed uh, veterans, and that all sort of came together, I guess, right? And uh, and then you had to have some of those uh, yeah. laws Absol- that, that, yeah, like the Absolutely. American... And, yeah. and- and then once it's sort of in the, in the hands of the veterans, they realize and, and they take control of sort of their fate. And that's sort of the other chapter of this. They, they coalesce, they form an organization called the Paralyzed Veterans of America, an organization that still exists, by the way, and it does great work um, supporting veterans um, who've been paralyzed on the battlefield. And they coalesce and, and lobbied for... Uh, disability rights. In other words, they helped get passage of a bill that they could it, that enabled them to buy special adaptive cars. There was also a bill they they were uh, able to get grants of money to build design um, accessible homes. You know, with ramps, uh, with uh, widened doorways, with low you know bathrooms that they could wheel their wheelchair in and out. And this had never been done. This was unprecedented. And um, it, was, it gave the veterans themselves, and, and it, it, this is how it sort of relates to wheelchair basketball, it's, it's a way of, okay, you, you now own a home. That's a stab and a, a, a move towards normalcy. You know, you're like everybody else. You, have a, you can get in your car with your wheelchair and drive away. You have a car that you, uh, a house that you can uh, move around in and, and live independently. And so the veterans were, were uh, coalesced around the, this PVA, and um, that helped them organize. They also raised a lot of money to research paraplegia for the doctors and the scientists who were studying them. I remember when they first I went to Boston University. I remember in Boston when they required that you had to have the the curbs had to be. Uh, right. I mean, it sounds like a small thing, but if you've ever watched anybody in a wheelchair trying to get over or up a curb, and it's very very difficult, or if not almost impossible. So it's uh, I mean yes. just yeah those kinds of things which are great. Yeah, uh, the yeah. things that. We- a lot of things that we take for granted, whether it's a, a, a kneeling bus in a city or, or you know, a, a parking uh, signs and spaces that are designed, you know, for people with disability to park so that they can be close to things. Small things, like you say, the curb cutouts, but it just makes life much more manageable, and it's not a big thing. And some of those innovations, by the way, came... Uh, they were the brain trust from, from uh, or the brain child, I should say, 
from a gentleman named Tim Nugent at the University of Illinois, um, Urbana-Champaign. And again, this ties in with the paralyzed veterans in the sense of many of them started to use the GI Bill to go back to college, earn their degree so that they could have a good job and have a family, raise a family, that sort of thing. And yeah, well, now fast Tim forward Nugent with the Internet and computers, that's a whole new area, which is great, which you don't need to be able to, I mean, you can be in a wheelchair or unable to walk. You don't need, you just, uh, you know, so that's, a, a, I mean, there are obviously all kinds of opportunities there. Maybe that's just Absolutely. the obvious. Yeah. Absolutely. But, um, but uh, you know, just to finish the thought, the, the, the New University of Illinois, just on the campus, they, they brought in, they designed on their own, they had kneeling buses for their students with, who were in wheelchairs, and that had never been done before. So it was people all around realizing and studying and watching and observing and uh, seeing what, what, what can we do to make this life accessible um, and, 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 and certainly it's, it's been for the better. Now, David, can we talk about maybe, I mean, there are three men that you focus on in, the, in your book who came back from uh, World War II, I guess from the Pacific also in Europe, and I guess two of them right. had been shot and mm-hmm. um, shot with the, you know, and, and shot and then affected their spinal cords. Um, and they came, they were, they had been athletes before, they were very young men, they had been, um, you know, in, in relationships, if I think one of them was married. Let's talk about that, because there's also the psychosocial aspect of all of this. I used to work in a rehab hospital as a social worker, and there mm-hmm. were a lot of taboo subjects, including sex, for instance. Right. Um, you know, if you're paralyzed, can you still have sex? Um, right. Yeah, and right. no one wanted yeah. to talk about that. No one, Anyways. right. No, yeah. no, you're right. You're You're completely right, and it was sort of... Uh, you know, it, this is 40s, late late 40s after the war, early 50s. That that was certainly a taboo subject um, outside of a hospital, and and uh, men who servicemen who were who came back from the war paralyzed. Some of them had been married before the war, and so now they're in a completely different situation with their spouse. Um, some men, uh, um, you know, who were younger, or let's say, and were single. Um, they had to sort of figure out how am I, you know, what do I do? How do I have a relationship? Can I have a relationship? Can I have sex? Can I have children? Uh, all of these things were had to be figured out and explained and so forth. And by the way, just on a side note, many of the men, paralyzed veterans from World War II, many of them ended up marrying nurses that they, who they met through the VA, but just on a side note. Um, but you mentioned the, the three veterans um, who I write about, and I, I, I specifically wanted to sort of bring, uh, you know, a few lives uh, back to, uh, you know, to spotlight in a way to, to, to show their sacrifice and, and what they went through. Uh, one of the gentlemen was, was, a, was John Winterhaller, Johnny Winterhaller. He was an all-star athlete at the University of Wyoming right before the war baseball, basketball, football, um, and probably could have played professional ball, but he had gone to school on an ROTC scholarship, and so he was, uh, had to serve, and he went into the Marines, and he was actually sent to the Philippines before Pearl Harbor in 1941, and, um, 
ended up fighting the Japanese in the Philippines. He was captured along with many other Americans and Philippine troops on the island of Corregidor, which is sort of infamous in World War II lore. And unfortunately, Johnny was in a POW, Japanese POW camps in the Philippines until 1945. And this was a guy who was, you know, made his fame in sports. And by the time he came out of the camps, he was about 90 pounds withered and his body had sort of broken down. And unfortunately, he lost the, the use, of, use of his legs because of lack of nutrition and medical care. Um, so that was one story. Uh, another was, was a gentleman named Stan Denadell who was shot in the back um, in the waning days of the war, just a couple weeks before the war ended in the European theater. He was involved in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, he came home. He weighed about 70 pounds. And uh, Denadell uh, ended up uh, in Birmingham Hospital out here in Southern California in Van Nuys in the San Fernando Valley. He, became, he was on the first wheelchair basketball team that ever was created, and helped uh, make the sport something viable. He became a, he used the GI Bill to go back to school. He earned his MBA at UCLA and spent the rest of his career in banking at the Bank of America and was always involved in disability rights and, and, and fighting for people um, for ex- accessibility. Um, and so he lived and, a long life, didn't he, till he was oh, almost 90, oh, 87? Something like that. Yep, all of them did. All of them lived a full life. All of them were married. Uh, two of them adopted children. Um, the other one was married a couple times but never had children. Um, and that other gentleman was Gene Fessenmeyer. He was a, uh Iowa farm boy who, you know, joined um, uh, the day after his high school graduation and joined the Marines Um Gene was being trained actually for the invasion of Japan if, if that had come to, to pass, as opposed to, uh, you know, President Truman ordering the atomic bombs. Uh, but he was wounded, uh, shot by a sniper on Okinawa and, uh, survived and came back and rehabbed and played wheelchair basketball alongside Johnny Winterhaller and, um, lived, uh, you know, just a, a varied life. He lived all over the world, in Hawaii and Mexico, and, you know, a wheelchair didn't stop him. And, um, you know, we were talking just on, a, again, a side note, we were talking before about, you know, stereotyping and so forth. And when I first started researching the book, I, I sort of offhandedly said something along the lines of, oh, how long have you been confined to a wheelchair? You know, that phrase, confined to a wheelchair. Confined, yeah. And, and, you know that that is totally the wrong act, you know wrong way to say it to somebody who's lived 50 60 years in a wheelchair they're not confined in a wheelchair or by a wheelchair they just happen to use wheelchair to get around um, and I think live. people are afraid even today to say that, that some people, uh, I'm going to say the wrong thing uh, because if I don't, you know, confine to a wheelchair, for instance, or right. that, uh, and it's sort of in a way kind of like, well, I feeling like you have the power to really necessarily victimize somebody who's been in a wheelchair for 60 years. They can tell you how they feel or what they I mean, it's you know what I'm trying to say? It's sort of like um 
very comfortable in in um, in their own skin and uh, will be sometimes very helpful to people who otherwise don't want to connect with people in wheelchairs because they're afraid they are going to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. Um, and uh, so I think that's important to kind of think about when you yeah, want to make no, that absolutely. kind of, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And when I went, I, of those three men, um, only Gene Fessenmeyer was still alive when I started writing the book. I, I basically talked a lot with their children, you know, their children, the adopted children. But Gene was still alive, so I went to visit him in Texas and, uh, you know, hung out with him for a week, and then we'd talk on the phone all the time. And when I saw him, I, I looked at him, you know, he's in a big old wheelchair, and I'm, I'm sort of looking at him going, that you look a little different. He goes, I go, why do you look? He goes, yeah, well, I had my legs uh, amputated a long time ago. And I, and I was like, what? What, what do you mean? He yeah. goes, I, I didn't need them. I, what, you know, it didn't matter to me. And, you know, again, I, I just was <laughs> struck by sort of my ignorance, but also just his attitude of, you know, I don't need these things. Uh, they're just appendages, and they're dead weight to me. And he was able to, you know, move on and and not have to deal with that. I'd never thought about that. Do you think that is there a me- medical reason for that? They are. There are appendages that you have to take care of that really you're not yeah, using. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Because you, they would break. You know, sometimes and this often might happen. They would break a leg, and they wouldn't even know they had broken the leg, and that Pretty could good. obviously lead lead to other, you know, diseases or or, or problems, health problems, yeah. bed sores, yeah. those kinds of things. I think yeah. when you yeah, I work. I mean, think about. I always, you know, in, in reading your book, I couldn't help but think about Christopher Reeve. I mean, paralyzed from the neck down, um, right. and <laughs> was right. he? And yeah, there were, and there were very, very few quadriplegics who uh, survived World War II. There were a few that they were the exception, and that would, that's, as you say, like a higher neck injury is is going to cause a lot more damage. Um, and and to the you know to the body to the to the nervous system and uh, and spinal cord that's that that issue and yeah that that's a boy that's a that's a tough one to overcome yeah, yeah. That, that's absolutely a, a different set of issues a different set of problems I've been I've skied with uh, it's not quadru- uh, not paraplegic uh, men actually on uh, pretty. Black diamonds and uh, right. one-legged skiers. Am- well, amputees? now these are amputees. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. just amazing. And that yeah. that came out. That by the way, that came out of it came out of World War II. They started really doing it after the Korean War with veterans. But those were some of the. I'm I'm gonna. Say, I, I might have the name wrong, but it was the Mountain Division, the skiers of the Mountain Division, U.S. veterans. When they came back, a lot of them helped form what we know of as the U.S. ski industry out west and so forth. And there was Jim Withers and some other veterans uh, who were non-disabled started uh, the amputee skiing. So, yeah, that, that also comes from the veterans as well. It's a, another legacy of sort of the greatest generation passing on this, this um, ability to go, hey, let's, let's just keep going. Let's, let's go skiing. We can do this. We can figure this out. Yeah, exactly, and and all of these prostheses and these companies who make these uh, just incredible, you know, legs and arms and all of those kinds of things. The technology is 
booming, which is it, a great thing. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and by the way, I mean, for some of your listeners may know this, and, and you have, as well, there's, there's, it, it's called the Abilities Expo, and this is something that it's basically a trade show uh, convention for all manner of disabilities and uh, physical, intellectual, et cetera. And it, 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 it sort of hopscotches around the country to various cities, and it's just a, a wealth of information. And uh, what a great resource. Obviously, now I think they're doing it all virtual, but it, it, it's a great uh, resource for those of you, who, for those listeners who might be in, interested. Great. We have 30 seconds left, and this was a great conversation. And also the book, I recommend the book. Uh, a lot of history in the book, as well as the personal stories of these three young men. Wheels of Courage, How Paralyzed Veterans in World War II Invented Wheelchair Sports, Fought for Disability Rights, and Inspired a Nation. David Davis, author and journalist, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 